Mike Fina, Executive Director of the Oklahoma Municipal League, and I want to welcome you back again to the Oklahoma Municipal League podcast. I'm very excited today. We're going to talk about the recent elections in the state and in the country, and I'm going to be having that conversation with one of my dear friends and someone that's very knowledgeable on this topic, Senator A.J. Griffin. A.J. Uh, is no longer in the Senate. Now she is the Director of Government and Community Affairs for PACOM. AJ, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Mike. It's really good to be here today. I have been looking so forward to having this conversation with you because you and I do this uh, on a friendship level pretty much every time there's a, a, an election, and now we're going to do it for the listeners of our podcast. Well, if anybody wants a, a healthy bipartisan conversation about politics, they just need to eavesdrop on one of our lunches. Yeah, yeah, they could come have coffee with us. They could hear this. But today we're going to put it out on the Internet and see who actually listens to us. So so it was very exciting uh, this week. It's not over, which is a little different, uh, even for a presidential race. Uh, I, I wish we would have had as much excitement at the state level as we did at the federal level, but that just really wasn't the case. There were some interesting things that happened. So why don't we start there? What were your first impressions of the, uh, the state races and what happened in Oklahoma? Well, we'll talk a little bit about this, but the, the main thing about the state races in Oklahoma is how few there were. Um, compared to how many there should have been for a general election cycle to not have every seat be contested um, is a trend that we've seen in Oklahoma over the last election cycles. And it certainly didn't improve any this election cycle, even though we had um, a lot of enthusiastic um, participation by Democrats across the country. We didn't necessarily see that as much in Oklahoma. No, we didn't. We had uh, we had 13 Senate races and 37 House races. Now, what could have been would, would have been 24 Senate races and 101 House races since they're up every two year. That really is down. I, I think one of the reasons, uh, as, a, as you recall, that the uh, filing period was right at the heart of the COVID outbreak, and there were a lot of things going on at the Capitol. We even had to adjust how we, we did our filing this year. Yeah, and unlike two years ago, whenever we had the teacher caucus and the the fallout from the teacher walkout, where we had a lot of enthusiasm for new people filing to run for office, we just didn't see see the same number of new candidates uh, this election cycle. Yeah, and I wonder. I mean, I think we're we're going to spend the better part of the next five years blaming everything on COVID. I think that had something to do with it, but I agree. For a, a presidential year when we got to filing, it didn't feel like there was a lot of enthusiasm on either side for running for office. Well, and it was, and it was on both, like you said, on both sides. We had a lot of offices that were um, held by Republicans where there wasn't a, a general election, but same thing in a few of the Democratic held um, seats as well. Yeah, there were, there were a few interesting ones. Now, uh, when we when we go back into session in February, there'll be there'll be a lot of new faces. There'll be a lot more Republicans than there were before when there were there were plenty of them before. Uh, the new makeup of the House will be 82 Republicans and 19 Democrats. Uh, in the Senate, there'll be 39 Republicans and nine Democrats. Um, then, I'll, and I know we'll talk about this a little later. Right now, we'll or, or here soon, we will have one vacancy with Stephanie Bice being elected to Congress. But uh, that's a that's more than a supermajority for the Republicans. Uh, that's a supermajority plus, um, and we saw that across the country. Um, there were uh, didn't see a lot of shifts in legislatures in any of the states, although there were three additional state legislative bodies that were taken over by um, Republicans that were previously 
where the majority was uh, Democrat. So we're continuing to see at the state level a dominance by the Republican Party. I think there's one other issue uh, that this is going to play into that will start getting a lot of attention after all the campaign stuff dies down, and that's redistricting. It's a redistricting year. Mm. Most, uh, uh, in most states, not just in Oklahoma. Of course, uh, we'll pay most attention here, but that's happening all across the country. And in most states, the legislative body controls the the redistricting process. So this isn't a trend that's going to be reversed anytime soon. No, um, there probably isn't a better time for Republicans to have this kind of majority be going into redistricting. So I think we'll probably see a, a Republican majority for quite a while in Oklahoma. Um, especially with all the statewide offices and the governor's office. Uh, and I'll but, remind you, Mike, that, that the Democrats did that, were in charge of that process for, um, oh, I don't know, a good century? Oh, yeah. A good we, solid century? Listen, we, we spent a hundred years messing it up, and uh, you guys have, uh, what, 80 more to go before uh, before you get to where we were at. So. <laughs> before we mess it up enough that it flips yeah, back in that, the other that, direction? <laughs> yeah. You know, my, my you and I have had these conversations. I'm I'm as moderate as the Democrats are in Oklahoma, and I fall right into that that category. I, I would like to see it get a little bit closer to 50-50, um, just so we're having some negotiations and there's some discussion. I think there are times, not being critical, but I think there are times that, that things get rushed through that don't get all the discussion that they need. But well, Speaker McCall is probably wondering how in the world he's going to um, wrangle 82 members of, of his caucus um, as they go into the next session, especially when you have so many new faces that really don't necessarily know the process. And um, a lot of this, you know, we, we talk about term limits, but um, term limits are, are contributing to uh, to the, to this issue because we do have we don't have long-standing members of either either party to really control and maintain power for very long. Yeah, I when I worked for the this the last Democratic Speaker of the House, Larry Adair, and I, I was able to go into the caucus meetings. And we had when I first started to work for the House, we had a, super, a majority, supermajority. The problem that we had, and I can't, and I obviously I don't get invited to any Republican caucus meetings, but uh, I can't imagine you're having the same problem. But we were, there was such internal strife, and when when there were seventy plus Democrats, it wasn't. It wasn't two sides. Sometimes it was three sides. Sometimes it was four, and people create coalitions, and even in your own caucus, work to, to that. And I'm sure that's happening, and that's got to be difficult for the Republicans on both both uh, chambers. I've heard stories from members of, of the Oklahoma Senate that served whenever it was a tie, and they talk about how productive those years were because of the collaboration that was required, and they had co-committee chairs. A Republican and a Democrat had to co. Uh, chair committee. Um, it'll be interesting. The U.S. Uh, Senate is going to probably be one of the closest held bodies in the entire United States government system, top to bottom, with that very close split, especially understanding that, that in the Senate, usually you need 60 votes to advance things and to really follow the Senate rules to get things get things done. So that, that parity that we'll see in the U.S. Senate will be interesting. Yeah, I'm, and I know we'll talk a little more about federal later, but I, I'm actually a little bit optimistic, um, I, and I'm, I'm really going to try and stay away from all the presidential debates since we're right in the middle of it, but maybe with the Biden presidency and, and, and that margin in the Senate, 
that maybe we start seeing a little better legislation come through and people actually making the, the right deals for, and maybe people think that sounds bad when you say making a deal, but that's really what happens. You have to come to some kind of conclusion on both sides, uh, and hopefully that's what happens and things calm down. Well, one of the good things about COVID was we saw a very brief period in the United States Congress where there was bipartisanship to actually hastily solve some real problems. And it can happen. Degree, I, yeah. I, and it's actually a thing of beauty when it does, uh, when you see them getting along and working. It, it's that That's the best part. I guess for us politicos, when we see that, we get excited about it. But uh, I, I just hope the general public can see it when it happens. And maybe we need to do a better job of explaining it. Maybe they don't know what it looks like anymore. So. There was always, um, when I was a member, there was always a perception that the members didn't get along and that that, that division was always along party lines. And really isn't the case. The vast majority of what any legislative body does is usually either unanimous or very close to unanimous. And then there are those divisive issues that, that divide the two sides or um, or the other um, natural lines of division. In Oklahoma, we do still occasionally see the rural-urban divide that shows, shows its head. More and more, that rural-urban divide is going to mirror the party divide. Republican, Democrat, as we see urban areas, can, uh, even here, being more increasingly controlled by Democrats and urban er and rural areas that were historically held by Democrats flipping and, and going Republican. Yeah, that's a and great segue, by the way. Uh, no, that, that's a perfect discussion. When you look at the numbers from Oklahoma County and you see how well Democrats performed in, in Oklahoma County, uh, you saw uh, Kendra Horn actually had more votes in Oklahoma County than Stephanie Bice did, but couldn't overcome the, the rural parts. Uh, you look at if there is a Oklahoma version of a blue wave or a blue wall, you're starting to see it reach into northwest Oklahoma City. And you would think 10 years ago you would have thought that was impossible, but those numbers are really changing. Yeah, and we, you're seeing that all across the country when we look at the maps and um, someone said to me the other day, well, if we voted by county, then Republicans would control everything. And I said, yes. And if those counties could vote, there's some of them, but there's no people there. So we right. still actually vote where people are. Where more people are, you have more votes. And um, you know, one man, one woman, one vote uh, is still the system. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing similar trends in Tulsa. Tulsa is not happening as quickly as Oklahoma County, but Tulsa County is seeing the same thing. Yeah, so and see that trend. Um, you know, of course, uh, now part of my job is to watch legislatures all across the country, and we're not unique. Um, Oklahoma is not an outlier. These are the same things we're seeing in Texas, we're seeing it in Arizona, New Mexico, and obviously in, in places like Arizona, it's showing in this year's presidential election. I had an interesting meeting yesterday. We're, we're part of the National League of Cities, and there is a someone that has my position in 49 other states except Hawaii, but that's because they only have one municipality, but we don't want to talk about that today. Uh, but the meeting yesterday gave every one of us an opportunity to just take a couple of minutes and talk about what's happening in our state. And it, it was an interesting dynamic because the, the uh, director from Maryland went right before me and his first comments were, uh, well, you want me to describe Maryland? Blue, 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 blue. And then went on to talk a little bit, and, and so I got to go next. And, of course, I, it was perfect for me to say, well, Scott, was, uh, is the director there, said, I, I guess I would characterize it as red, red, red here. So it just kind of depends what state you're in. The South Carolina director, we could have interchanged our two reports because it ha they, they had an overwhelming uh, 
change in their in their House and Senate for Repu- not change, but just increase in, in Republicans. Same thing, very similar to their to their uh, Senate race and their and their House races. So. Well, and I, Virginia recently flipped, and it was a Republican stronghold for a long time. Is now Democrat all the way up and down in the state and at the governor's office. But some another stat that I thought was really interesting that I found out this morning is in the U.S. House, in any seat that was previously held by a Democrat that is now going to be held by a Republican, that candidate is either a woman, a minority, or a veteran. And so you see the, the, the change in even the Republican Party, the candidates that are winning, um, they look a little different. Um, and in many of those situations, they were unseating a white male. So we also have not just the party demog- uh, party issues going on, but just this change in demographic that we're seeing in elected bodies across the country, even right here in Oklahoma. Um, you know, electing a, a member of uh, a Muslim, member of the Muslim faith to the Oklahoma House of Representatives. If we go back even 10 years ago, that would have been unheard Never of. Never happened. <laughs> um, it would have been unheard of. And so we're seeing that change and more people are participating in the process and a lot of an increased diversity um, in elected officials. Yeah, since you brought it up, that, that actually is a very interesting race because Maureen um, Turner, who won that, who you're referring to, she actually beat in the primary Jason Dunnington. By all accounts, I, I don't think you would find someone in the in the Capitol or probably in his district that didn't just love Jason Dunnington. He was an incredible legislator, but he was unseated by somebody more liberal than him in a blue seat, which is interesting for Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, to have someone, an incumbent, a popular incumbent, unseated by, to their left, that's a pretty rare feat. Um, it happens to, to individuals' rights occasionally, and in fact, we saw that. Um, in this election cycle, whenever Senator Ron Sharp was defeated in a primary um, by someone running to his right mm-hmm. um, over some specific, very specific issues, so um, you know, of course, those the candidates that are running on the on the edges still can beat beat out a popular incumbent. That's an interesting. You know that you you're bringing up all the really interesting races. You got, I, I hear my notes in front of me. Where that so Ron was uh, replaced by Shane Jett, who is a former House member. Now, I remember Shane in the House. He wasn't the far right guy when he was in the House. I would have characterized him as a moderate, but you're right. He he ran really hard to the right to get ahead of Sharp. Now, there, again, there were some education issues and other mm-hmm. things that they really... Well, and I think Senator Sharp was taken out. I mean, it was 100% based on education views. And in the Republican Party, the the propensity to like school choice and his um, opposition to that particular platform um, item. That was one plank of the Republican platform is is education choice, and he um, was in opposition to it, and that's really why he lost, that one issue. I I know it probably doesn't sting any less, but because of the the epic... Charter school lawsuits and and what the what happened to the AG's office he was vindicated a little bit <laughs> towards uh, to, yeah to a certain extent to yes. a certain extent so uh, I I I like Ron I hope he I hope he has great success past this but uh, I I'm sure that doesn't make up for losing the election but so um, a few other uh, we we had more we didn't have any Republican incumbents other than what we just talked about in the primary but the majority of uh, a lot of Democrats did. Uh, Matt Meredith lost to Bob A. Culver. Chelsea Brannon lost her race. I, I don't have that, who, who she lost to. Uh, Allison Eichley Freeman in the Senate. And then, uh, the, but the Democrats did gain, although they lost one seat, they did gain one seat with Joanna Dossett, 
So um, not as huge turnover in the Senate, but those, those are some interesting points. Well, the Senate kind of traded out um, with Allison Eichler Freeman going down, but, but um, picking up, uh, uh, Democrats picking up the Stanislavski seat that was with Senator Stanislavski um, uh, terming out and uh, Joanne Dossett picking up that seat, which, which was previously, previously held by Republican, which kind of indicates, of course, that's Tulsa County, mm-hmm. kind of indicates the, the changing, shifting dynamics in the urban areas. Dave Rader had a pretty close race uh, in, in the interior of Tulsa. Well, and if you look at all, almost all of the races, they started with um, the discrepancy between early voting and those uh, the absentee mail-in voting and the day of uh, the election voting. We saw that consistently um, in almost every race. And even even pro Tim Greg Treat here in Oklahoma City started after absentee mailing voting, he started down he significantly. So did uh, Senator Bice in, in her race for Congress against uh, Kendra Horn. She started after absentee mailing like 60,000 votes in the hole and had to make that up with early voting and election day voting. And that was interesting because that mirrored some of the other numbers uh, in, in Oklahoma County and even actually statewide, and um, we're going to talk about the state questions, but that was pretty close in that too, wasn't it? Yeah, state question 805 um, started ahead by about 60,000 votes, to set that same number that Senator Vice was in the hole, um, and then of course uh, state question, it, it wound up going down, state question 805 wound up going down, but it started with a, a yes lead with uh, just absentee mail-in voting. And that was saying the numbers were similar uh, on 814 too. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so from that you can kind of deduce that the individuals that are voting for, for Congresswoman Horn for re-election were also voting yes on state question 805. So we, the Democrats just need to get more of those early votes out. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's a trend and it's not just here in Oklahoma. No, it's nationwide. Um, nationwide, the, the, the division that has been manufactured in many ways. I will admit that I believe this division has been manufactured between the mail-in voting process and an in-person voting process. Whenever in a, in Oklahoma, we really shouldn't see that discrepancy because we've got very, um, just an outstanding election system uh, comparatively. And I think we saw that again. We don't, we're, we're one of the states that we're, we're finished and it isn't because it was an overwhelming, um, although most of the races were overwhelming, but even if it was a tri- tight race, um, we would have a better system than some of our, our colleagues, uh, across some of the states across the country. And we have to, it, it would not be fair of us to not mention how great Paul Zerex is. He's really done a good job at the election board and uh, just sharp as can be. Well, we know Governor Sitt talks about top 10 all the time. This is an area we're certainly top 10 and I would Place our, <laughs> I would place our election system certainly in the top five yeah. in, in the nation, and that is, um, it, it's the collaborative process between the legislature and Secretary Xerox and the trust that everyone places in, sec- in Secretary Xerox as he runs our election system. You're not going to hear, not Republican or Democrat, um, you're not going to hear uh, any member of the legislature second guess his decisions in most cases, and he does an outstanding job with transparency. Um, trains his people well, and and also has the kind of process that if you have a problem while you're at the at the the, the poll, and you can pick up the phone and you can usually get your county election secretary on the phone even the day of an election, and, and that's a great process. And we did have long lines. Um, we did. We did have long lines. I think our biggest problem was traffic, um, and the other uncontrollable the weather. Yeah. <laughs> we had a couple of days it was pretty chilly, yeah. where people were standing in those lines outside. But election day was beautiful and. I don't think we could have ordered a better election day in Oklahoma. So, 
yeah. general election day. Well, and, and the states that don't start counting votes until the day of the election, this is a process that is just foreign to us. We have our set up that all those all those already cast ballots are counted on the day of the election, and then it allows election officials to concentrate on in-person voting on the day of in-person voting. So, it, you know, you and I were having a, a little bit of that conversation before we started, and I, I'm I'm still struggling to even think what the rationale when whether it was debated at the legislature why you wouldn't start counting those ballots to get ahead of it, especially this year. Well, and and I could see why a legislative body might be concerned that if the votes are already counted and people know what that count is, if the voters know that count it can influence the election. But we've seen here in Oklahoma, I'm not aware of any leak of the number. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm, in fact, I'm sure that the security is very tight around knowing what the vote count is mm -hmm. and so that the public doesn't know because it's important. You know, I also think that, that the vote count should not be released until the last person has voted. So if you're in line and you're waiting to vote, no one should know who's leading right. until you have cast your ballot, until the very last person has cast their ballot, because we won't, don't want those numbers to influence the process. You know, I suppose if, I, if I'm going to get on a soapbox at all today, it's, it's here on this topic. One of the things that I, I'm, I am a little frustrated with after Tuesday is the constant attack on, the, uh, on these processes. Um, I'm not naming names, but it's pretty easy to figure out where that's coming from. Um, you know, Pennsylvania is getting a lot of the attention right now. I don't think there's one thing wrong that's happening in Pennsylvania. All these are, are votes that were cast to Tuesday or prior to Tuesday, and they're going through their, their established process. And to say that that's wrong is a, literally a deterioration of our democracy. And that's the first brick to fall if your democracy were to go away and I, I know none of us want to lose what we have in this country because it's what makes us great but it is frustrating to see that happening right now well mike you and i talk about this all the time there are two things that americans want until they don't and one of those is local control <laughs> <laughs> yes. and our municipal <laughs> we love local control yeah, uh, municipalities know all about that and until they want the local control until you know sometimes they have to make some hard decisions, then they're like, oh, wait a second, maybe the governor should make that decision. Um, local control, and, then, and the other is a republic. Um, the, the, the rules in Pennsylvania are up to Pennsylvania, and it's important that, you know, of course, in the presidential election, um, the people are electing the electors because and that report to the Electoral College, and that vote, we won't actually elect a president until December. That's right. Uh, December the 14th, when the Electoral College um, votes in their states and determines uh, what those um, delegates uh, will be, you know, who they're going to be supporting for president as a state. And so, therefore, if we're truly a republic, then the systems are up to the states exactly. to decide. And, yeah, some states have some really terrible systems. They do. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't want to blow people's minds, but uh, the truth is, is that Trump isn't even technically the um, choice of Oklahoma yet because we haven't even certified the election in Oklahoma. Yeah. That's happening, I understand, on Friday. Uh, so this is not uncommon, I, and I, I don't want to make myself a liar here, but I think I'm right when I say this. I don't believe there's a state in the union that has certified their election to this point. Well, and, and a news channel calling the election does not 
does not make, make it an right. official result. And we've seen that, not just this cycle. In every previous years, cycle, every yeah. cycle, there's some new station that's trying to get the scoop and call the state first and makes a mistake. Yeah. So um, that's we've got to watch television with a discerning eye. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I think it's funny, over since Tuesday, I've had more phone calls from non-politicos asking me what's going on, you know, what's happening in Pennsylvania. I, I'm like, I, I don't study Pennsylvania statutes, so I'm not quite sure, but I can give you my opinion. But I think it's, I'm sure you've probably had 10 times what I have, but people are very interested right now and they're hanging on their television sets. It's great theater, but really I think the best thing is if people just would take a breath and let it play out. Uh, I, there will not, I, I'm confident to say this, like I can make my lock of the week, there's not going to be widespread fraud in any state or in any election across the country. I do think that, you know, obviously Florida, if we go back to, to um, an election with... Oh, Florida. I actually heard the phrase hanging chads this week, <laughs> which I hadn't heard for, for several years, hanging chads. But Florida, if you'll notice, large, I mean, huge state, unbelievably diverse, um, somewhat contentious because you've got quite a bit of, of just interesting politics in, in Florida with um, a very, very demographic. There's a big difference between the Panhandle and South Florida. But they learned their lesson with the hanging chad years yes. and had a very um, clear-cut, well-thought-out process. They have invested significantly in the technology that's available to, to make this um, to, to make elections run smoothly. It's re I, the, well, another thing that's been interesting about this last couple of days is how little we've heard about the Russians um, <laughs> <laughs> compared to, to, to a few years ago, um, which I, for that conversation led to some increased technology security so that you know, if we know it's a possibility that voting machines could be hacked by um, outsiders, I think that problem has been remedied in most in most states. I don't think we've heard anybody talking no. about that. Now it's manufactured um, votes or, you know, um, votes from people who have been deceased. And I remember back to the primary election where there was a news report of uh, someone who had voted who was deceased and the, uh, the widow was very upset. And then they, they but Secretary Zierix and his team researched it to try to find out what had happened and it was you know a simple mistake somebody had signed on the wrong line and really only one vote had been cast and the person was alive and well so a lot of this i it is it's appropriate for people to be skeptical and to to have watching eyes and to have that oversight of the electoral uh, the election process but it's also appropriate for us to think if we can do it you know if we trust oklahoma to do a good election, we can probably trust Pennsylvania to do I an agree. election as well. I, that that actually throws me back to when I worked with Governor Nye. His favorite joke that, and he still tells it to this day, is that when he dies, he wants to be buried back in his home county, Pittsburgh County, so he can keep on voting. So, <laughs> and I, I, you know, I think there probably at times it was a lot easier to create voter fraud. It's very difficult now. Yeah. Well, and in, and we have. A number of states that have a voter ID law, which I know is controversial and is considered by some to be voter suppression. I, I think that it, it's an appropriate you know, choice to make if you to show ID whenever you ID cast too. your cast your vote, yeah. just to to create some um, belief and trust in the process. Now, I'll tell you one thing, and I, I, I this is I, as I get older, I change my opinion on things, so I try try to be flexible in my thinking. I've actually changed my opinion on uh, the notary. I, I, I don't like the idea of the notary. I think there's ways to 
verify somebody's identity without that. And, I, and I'm not, I won't use this, I won't call it suppression, I just difficulty for, for people. Well, and I think the legislature's response during COVID with the alternative method of providing um, a, a copy mm-hmm. of your ID, it was an appropriate response. It was um, it, it was a great compromise for the situation we were in, knowing we see an increase in absentee by ma- by mail voting. Um, so, you know, that may be a change that they look at, making it part of the process going I forward, because there do. wasn't a lot of evidence that it created problems. Yeah, I agree. I hope they do. Uh, that it, it did provide one more uh, security on voting, but uh, it wasn't so difficult to have to go find a notary. Well, and with the notary now, if we look at four years from now, where we'll be technology-wise, and now with remote notaries, um, and you can do it via computer, um, you know, Technology is going to change the way we vote going forward, like it or not, (laughs) (laughs) and and a lot of people won't like it. But um, if if the goal is to have participation and to actually honor our Constitution and allow individuals to vote if they're eligible um, and protect and keep those who aren't eligible from voting, the use of of technology is going to change the way we vote. Absolutely. And I think that is a good place for us to probably wrap up today. Because I could actually do this with you all day, AJ. I really appreciate you taking time to come be a part of this with us. Uh, Right now, as you and I sit here, we don't know exactly who the president is going to be. By the time this airs, hopefully we do. So uh, uh, any any last predictions on that? Or do you you, you want to stay silent on that? No, I will make no predictions. But I do want to kind of end it. Just the parting is a thank you to any Oklahoman who um, was willing to place their name on a ballot and participate in the process. I think that's um, we definitely need to always acknowledge candidates, whether they're win or lose, because any time you participate fully by making yourself a candidate, you're improving Oklahoma. That was very eloquently said. I think that's a good place to leave it. I want to thank everybody for listening to the, to the OML podcast. We'll have more episodes coming up in the coming weeks.